Well, tonight, if you have a Bible with you or if you can uh, reach for a pew Bible, we're going to go to Luke chapter 1. And as I said, we're working through these two doctrines, and tonight we're thinking of the virgin birth. We're thinking about why that's really important for us. And so Luke chapter 1 and verse 26 through to 38, tonight we're going to read. So Luke 1 and verse 26 through to 38. If you're reading from a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1026. This is God's Word to us. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Amen. And we thank God for His Word to us. Now, part of what we have been thinking about over these two weeks, it's not something new. It's not that we have created this doctrine, but this is a a doctrine that the church has confessed over many, many years. And so, you'll see on your screen here, it'll come up for us. This is words that we have taken tonight from the Council of Nicaea. And if we go on to the next slide, we're, we're going to confess this together, so we're just going to repeat this because it's really helpful for us to know who our God is, to put words to that, to have the, the right theological framework for who He is, to have the right grammar whenever we speak about our God. And so from time to time, time, to time we maybe uh, repeat the Apostles' Creed or maybe we lift something from the, the different catechisms that we, that we lean upon. Uh, and tonight we're going to the Council of Nicaea back all the way in 325. So we'll repeat this together after me. So let's repeat this. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being, things in heaven and things on earth, who because of us men and our salvation 
came down and became incarnate, becoming man. Lovely. Well, we're uh, in Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at this passage, a few other passages as well tonight. Let me tell you a little story as we uh, begin. Uh, the Christmas before Katrina and I were married, um, Katrina's parents took us to a performance of Handel's Messiah uh, in Glasgow Cathedral. I had never been to Handel's Messiah before. I enjoyed it immensely. And as we were sitting there, I was thinking, do you know, wouldn't it be great whenever we're married and we're able to do all our own things and, and make on our own little Christmas traditions that, that maybe every year we'll go to a performance of Handel's Messiah? Well, that was 29 years ago. Last night, I took Katrina to our second ever uh, performance of the Messiah. So sometimes it takes a little bit of time uh, to get round to things. It was in the waterfront last night. It was really very, very good. And you probably know, I'm sure, all about the Messiah far more than I do. But it, it, it tells a story of the coming of Christ, the work of Christ. It's all Scripture. And at one point, Isaiah chapter 7 is sung. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. It's a central part of the Christmas story. Jesus is born to Mary, but he is not conceived in the, the, the normal way, for she is a virgin. Joseph is not the father. Jesus is conceived by the, the Holy Spirit. We talk about the, the virgin birth, but, but really more accurately, it's the virgin conception. Well, as I said, it's a well-known part of the Christmas story, but I, I couldn't help uh, knowing that I was preaching on this, no, looking around last night, I don't know how many hundred people there were uh, in the waterfront, and, and asking the question to myself, I wonder how many people here really believe this. True for, for any large gathering of people, I'm sure, anywhere, uh, but I wonder how many people believe it. For, for some people, I'm sure, it is just a part of the Christmas story, and people might say something like, well, you know, we, we love the Christmas story, but we, we sort of think it's a mixture of truth and exaggeration, and, and yet we've come to sort of treasure it for the nostalgia that it brings, and, and maybe some of the messages of hope that it communicates and so on. That, that's not an uncommon view. I'm sure that very many of your, your, your friends and, and, and connections think something like that. Maybe some of us here tonight or some of us listening, we think something like that. Virgin birth is widely dismissed as a true and historical event. So, what, what do we believe about it? What do we say at our office dinner whenever somebody says, oh, you don't believe that, do you? Why do we believe it's so important? That's what we're going to think about for a moment or two together tonight. We're going to look at what the Bible says about it going to look at, at what sort of uh, questions people might ask about it and how we might answer those. And then we're going to look at what it points to, and that's perhaps the most uh, important thing. So, what does the Bible say, first of all? Well, the Bible clearly says that Jesus was conceived in the womb of His mother Mary by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit without a human father. So, as I said, it's really a virgin conception rather than a birth. And the very first place that the Bible talks about that is not in the Gospels. It is, as Handel 
quote it, is Isaiah, Isaiah 14. So Isaiah 13, Isaiah 7, 13 says this, Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call Him Emmanuel. Now, the context there is that Ahaz, the king, he's worried about the future of David's kingly line. And Isaiah says, well, there's going to be a sign. There's going to be a sign that's going to confirm the kingly line, the work of God through that line, and that is that the virgin will conceive. Now, if you, if you look at that passage in uh, an NIV or an ESV, uh, certainly in an NIV, I think, uh, the, the, you might see a little footnote that says uh, it can be translated uh, young woman. And uh, it's best translated virgin, but it can be translated uh, young woman. And so, the, when the New Testament comes along, there is no question about what way it should be translated. It, it's very, very clear it should be translated virgin. So, so here it is, 700 years before the birth of Christ, uh, referred to. Then we come to what we read uh, a moment or two ago, Luke chapter 1. And uh, we read that the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says to her, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And Mary says, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will, will be called the Son of God. Beautiful description. There's a parallel account in Matthew. We actually had it this morning. Uh, Joseph is visited again by the angel, and it says, uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So, those are the two major references to the virgin birth in the Scriptures. No doubt that both Matthew and in Luke uh, it's very, very clear that Mary is a virgin when Jesus is conceived, and Matthew sees that as a direct uh, fulfillment of what is said in Isaiah. Outside of that, there are no direct references to it. It's interesting, though, as we follow through Matthew's gospel, that truth is, is underlined for us. So, when, when Joseph is told to flee to Egypt in a dream, he's told to take the child and his mother. Now, that's a, not, not take your son and his mother, but the child and his mother. It's just clear that, that there's an ongoing understanding that Joseph is not his biological father. Mark, interestingly, has a similar reference. Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Jesus is described as the son of Mary, when in that culture, it would have been normal to refer to a child in relation to the father. John doesn't mention the virgin birth directly. He majors on the fact that Jesus always was, that the birth was not the beginning of Him, but it was His stepping from glory into the world, and therefore it's entirely consistent with the virgin birth. So, so the Bible states it very, very clearly. It's not just a, 
an accidental reference that's been misinterpreted. That's the first thing we want to say, what the Bible says. The second thing is, what about the questions? What, what, what about the critics and the, the things that are, 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 are asked about it? So, you imagine that work night out. Uh, people ask you, tremendous opportunities, really, at, at, at Christmas time, you know, over food or whatever. People are, are asking you, well, so what, what happens in your house on Christmas morning? And you say, well, we get up at like 4.30 a.m. when the kids get up, and, and, and then uh, we eventually open the presents, and, and we we go to church, and maybe somebody says, really? You go to church? Are you religious? And you say, well, I wouldn't really maybe describe it like that, but, but I, I believe that the most important thing about Christmas is that Jesus really came into the world. But you can't believe in the virgin birth, can you? That, doesn't thing, that sort of thing just doesn't happen. It's not scientifically possible. Well, what do you say after that? What do you say when those sorts of questions come up? Well, it's really useful to, to think about that, isn't it? Because uh, the, the questions and challenges that emerge over that issue, over the virgin birth, emerge over many issues, don't they? Uh, uh, you don't believe that, that Jesus really walked in water, do you? You, you don't believe that, that Jesus really fed 5,000 people from uh, one small boy's lunchbox? You don't really believe that the tomb was empty, that Jesus rose from the dead? Very important to, to know how to answer those questions. Those are pretty common questions. So, sometimes you, you might see attempts to explain some of those things and how they might possibly happen. You see that even with the virgin birth. But it's really not helpful. Many of the central miracles that surround Jesus are not unlikely things that did happen. They are impossible things that did happen. They're impossible things that did happen. Why? Because they are events surrounding an absolutely unique and an unrepeatable event, the coming of the Son of God into the world. And the fact that these sorts of things don't normally happen is because it is not normal for the Son of God to step into our world. It is a unique event. It cannot be repeated. That's why science sometimes struggles over some of those things, because we know that, that's, that science demands, uh, if, if, if science is looking for evidence, it is looking for something that is repeatable by experiment. And, and with the unique event like the coming of Jesus into the world, well, it just can't meet those criteria. And you see, what the arrival of Jesus says is that normal service has been broken. God is doing something different, not what He normally does. If, if God's Son were to, to enter this world, we would expect that His arrival would be out of the ordinary and not in ordinary means. So, that's a worthwhile thing to, to have in your head to, to say to someone who's just saying, oh, can't really believe in miracles, can you? We, we, we've got to just believe in a, in, a, in a supernatural gospel. It's a God that, that breaks into nature. What about another uh, objection? Sometimes people will say, well, these were stories that were made up in order to have Jesus look good. And, and to support the idea, 
People will sometimes say, sure, weren't there lots of stories of miraculous births in the ancient world and myths and so on that were all tied to the arrival of special people? So, for example, Alexander the Great was supposed to have had a miraculous birth, as was Perseus and, and some others from mythology and so on. And a couple of things we can say about that. First of all, those stories are not really similar to the story of Jesus. In, in those legends, it is always the case, actually, that there's a coming together of some sort of mythical God and some human being. And, and the Bible describes a very different and, and dignified way in, in which Mary becomes pregnant. Very different. Secondly, the Bible doesn't then actually use, and we'll say more about this, but the Bible doesn't really use the virgin birth to establish Jesus as a great figure. It's, it's not used in that way at all. In fact, within the Bible, it's, it's not a starting point for making any great claims about Jesus. So, the resurrection is different in that regard, very different indeed. The Bible uses the resurrection as proof of who Jesus is. So, for example, um, Paul is preaching in Acts 17, and he says, for God has, ascend, uh, has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed, who is Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. You see, the resurrection functions as, as a, a, an indication that something is true about Jesus. But, but the virgin birth's not used that way in the Scriptures. So, so it's very unlikely that the, the gospel writers would have come together and said, well, if we make this up, it's going to make Jesus look better, because they would have used it in some way had they done so. Another Similar objection is that the writers made this up because they were aware of, of Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah being born to a virgin. But we, we've indicated that slight uh, confusion over the translation of Isaiah 7. And so there's no burning uh, expectation that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. So, so no one saw the significance of that verse until Jesus arrived the way He did. So if that's the case, if the church, in a sense, didn't need it, why would they invent it? There's no advantage to it at all. If anything, it just increases their, their difficulties. So, so, why would they make it up? The only thing that really makes sense here is that it happened and that they felt compelled to regard it, to include it as, as part of the story. So, that's some of the things that we might say to some of the people who might ask some of those questions. Well, what about the third thing? What does it point to? And maybe this is, is a little bit more important. The virgin birth points to a number of truths. As we said, it's, it's not a sort of a, it's not used in that way to prove things, to say this, is, this means that, but, but it, it points to truths. Let, let, me, let me mention some. It, it points to, first of all, a saving work of God, a saving work of God. This is maybe a smaller thing, but I don't know if you've realized this or noticed this, but all the way through the Old Testament, when God is about to work in a, a powerful or a saving way with His people, there, there are, those stories are sometimes punctuated by miraculous births. So, for example, you think of how Isaac comes to Abraham and Sarah, when Abraham's 100 years old, Sarah's 90. 
They, they, they describe themselves as, as good as dead. It, it, it's still a, a natural conception, but, but it's a miraculous birth, isn't it? Then there's the birth of Samuel in the same way. Uh, and then there's the, the, the birth of, of Moses, uh, not so much a miraculous birth, but a miraculous uh, preservation of Moses. Uh, so often the, the arrival of a, of a child signifies a, a major stage in, in salvation history. And so often those miraculous children have got, or those children have got some sort of miraculous event connected to them. John used that really good illustration this morning of, of police outriders on their motorcycles uh, signifying the arrival of royalty. And, and these births, these Old Testament births, are, are just like that. They're like those, those first outriders that are saying, one day behind us someone is coming so much greater than we are. And of course, Jesus' birth would be marked by this unusual and unique inbreaking of God. So, a, a saving work of God is pointed to. It points then to Jesus' divinity and humanity. That's really what we were thinking about uh, last week, last Sunday night. The fact that God is involved in Jesus' conception, it points to the truth that He is both Son of Mary and Son of God. He's both king in the line of David. We've looked at those genealogies in Matthew, and he's the Son of God. And that's exactly what we, we need, of course. We've said this. The penalty that we are under it needs to be paid by people, by, by man, because it is man's problem. But only God is sufficiently able to pay it. So, who can pay it? Well, only a God-man we need the Son of God to rescue us. C.S. Lewis put it like this, the Son of God became man to enable men to become sons of God. Very simple, very profound. In another place, he, he writes beautifully of, of His coming down, the, the, the Son of God coming down into this world. And he says this, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots of and seabed of the nature that He has created. He goes down to come up again and bring the ruined world up with Him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must also almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. The Son of God becomes man to enable men to become the sons of God. Now, the virgin breath points to this. It, it, this is the one who has come. This is where he has come from. Gabriel, the angel, as we've seen, comes from God to announce the one coming from God, who is God. And yet, at the same time, he's a man. He's a, he's a child of Mary. He has a normal gestation, a normal birth. Uh, John D. Rhodes' little book, Man of Sorrows, John referred to it last week, is so helpful, really, really brilliantly written. He says this 
about Jesus' birth. We saw that Jesus is both God and man. That union began in the womb of Mary as the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters forming creation. So He overshadowed Mary in order that a new creation might begin. The Spirit had to create what was lacking from Jesus, not having a human father. But Jesus was truly a son of Mary, was of her flesh, and inherited her DNA. Mary was no mere incubator, her womb, the test tube carrying a surrogate baby. No, she was the natural mother of Christ as your own mother is to you. So, the, the virgin birth is not the cause of Jesus being divine and human, but it points to it. It's, it's consistent with it. If you were to, to ask someone, well, you know, if God were to step into this world, how might that look? Well, this is how it might look. This is how it did look. And then the, the third thing is, it, it, it points to Jesus' perfection. The Bible teaches that we, we inherit our sin from our parents. That's, that's a, an odd notion, perhaps, to some of us. But we have both guilt and we have a, a corrupt nature whenever we're born. It's not the case, as, as is often uh, described, is that, 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 that we enter this world sort of neutral, like a, an empty jotter, uh, waiting for mistakes to be made. That's how lots of people look at children, look at, at people, uh, that, that we somehow go wrong once we're able to understand. That's not the case. We start broken, and this brokenness is passed down to us from our parents, from our original parents. The confession teaches this. Uh, uh, let me read you a few uh, chapters of this. There's, there's one that we're going to concentrate on. Uh, our, our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptations of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin God was pleased, according to His wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purposed to order it to His own glory. So, our first parents sinned. By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin, and wholly defined in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. So, they sinned and they fell. And then this, number three, I think it's on the screen. They being the root of all mankind, so our uh, ultimate parents, they being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed. And the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity or offspring, descending from them by ordinary generation. So, you see that what had happened in, in the garden with Adam and Eve is, is not just some distant story that illustrates what happens to us. It is that, but it's also something that directly affects us, changes us. This corrupted nature passed down by ordinary generation. But the thing is, of course, as we've just been saying, Jesus' generation is not ordinary. And so the, vir the virgin birth points to a, a break with the link to Adam. All of us born with a bias to sin, we, we inherit it somehow. It means that we are sinners. But Jesus' miraculous birth points to a break with that line. It signifies that there's something very different about this Jesus. 
And as the story moves on, we can see that he was tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. Now, what about the fact that, that Jesus is born not only without a human father, but he's born of Mary? How, how, how come that he doesn't inherit sinfulness from her? Well, that's a question that's been, been answered differently by uh, different traditions. In the Catholic tradition, some of you might know, this, this problem is solved by saying, saying that Mary herself was, was sinless. In order to give birth to a, a sinless Son of God, she had to be sinless. And so, in 1854, that's not all that long ago, 1854, Pope Pius decreed that Mary was, quote, preserved immune from all stain of original sin. Now, what do we say to that? Well, we've got to say there's no support from the Bible for that. And you'll notice that there's a pretty late teaching that the Catholic Church has adopted. In, In the Bible, Jesus is affirmed as being without sin, but, but Mary never is. She, she comes under the banner of all of those statements that the Bible makes about all of us as people. No one is good but God alone. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. She was without doubt, as we've just seen, as we've read, she was without doubt faithful and godly according to the gospel's pictures of her, but still a a member of the, the sinful human race, and, and still someone who, who needed a Savior. So, so, how can this sinful mother give birth to a sinless Jesus? Well, we've got to simply say that the, the work of the Holy Spirit in Mary not only broke the link with Joseph, where he was not involved, but also in a miraculous way prevented the transmission of sin from Mary. Remember, in Luke chapter 1, we've seen verse 34, it says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and therefore the child will be called holy. There's, there's an implication, isn't there, that this holiness is due to the, the operation of the Spirit of God. So, so the fact that, that there's something different about this birth points to all of this. He, he's, the, he's the perfect one. He's the one who comes like the first Adam, born perfect, but to go, wrong, to go right where he went wrong. And this is where what Jesus does. At every point, he goes God's way. And why is that important? So that, so that we who do not go God's way might be set free by the perfect one. See? And then the last thing, and perhaps this is the main thing, it, it points to, to God's role in salvation. What, what do we see here? We, we see this, this child being conceived, with, as it were, without human help. God does it. The Holy Spirit, just as He, he broods, as John Lee says in his book, he, just as He brooded over the, 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 the formless waters at, at creation, ready to create, so God overshadows Mary for this special work. God alone does all that is necessary. He works in us to provide what is needed. And, and that's what's pointed to here. What have we contributed to salvation? What, what have we contributed to, to Jesus 
coming amongst us. Not a thing. He is God's gift to us. We didn't ask for Him. We didn't generate Him. He, he comes in grace as grace. It's all down to God, you see. And, and that's, the, that's the big note of the Christmas story. This is not one who was sought for. You know, the, the shepherds weren't checking their watches and waiting and saying, he's late. He wasn't sought. It's not something that we dream up. It's, it's not a, a time to, to try harder. This is what the, the world says, isn't it? You know, make a bit of extra effort at Christmas. Tell the story about football in the trenches so that you can be nice to your neighbor for at least a few hours, you know. But we try to sin through the year and then we sin less at Christmas. Is that really what it's about? How hopeless that is. Now, this is about a God who comes in power and acts by himself for his glory and for our benefit. So Isaiah, this is the way God works. Isaiah says, the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. Who, who could help him out? Who could help out our God? He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. And you see, that's the, that's the Christmas story, isn't it? God's at work, unexpectedly, wonderfully, miraculously, providing a Savior, a Savior that even righteous people like Joseph and Mary really need it. And if they needed him, well, then we do too. So, a unique birth, something that has never happened before or since, because this is the unique arrival of the unique Son of God. So, whenever that work colleague asks you, do you really believe in the virgin birth? You can go, create what an opportunity, and off you go. 35 minutes, and, and you'll be flying. Maybe more importantly, the question is, do we know him? Because let's not get this wrong. He's not just come to, to show us how to be kinder or how to be nicer, how to be better, how to be more Christmassy. He's come to to save absolutely what we need came as a man that we could be children of God. 